Hello and welcome to the podcast for the November 2012 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and I'm delighted to be joined by Elena Becker-Barossa. Welcome Elena. Thank you Richard. It's been a while so welcome back. Thank you so much. <laughs> now I have to, I've got a bone to pick with you and TLN this month because you've given me an absolute tongue twister of a, of a project. Uh, our main focus this month is on a review and I interviewed uh, the, one of the authors of this paper, who's called Professor Mario van der Knapp uh, from, Amst- from the University in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And the topic of her review and, and our author interview in a moment is MLC. But I need to spell out what MLC is, but I can hardly pronounce it. Elena, I'll give it a go. Megalencephalic leukoencephalopathy with subcortical cysts. How's that? I, I think it's correct, but yes. Well, we'll hear from we'll yeah. hear from Professor van der Knapp uh, in in a moment with more details. And it's fascinating interview. I have to say, uh, I, I found it as well. But just before that, Elena, why don't you just briefly walk through some of the other highlights from the November issue? With pleasure. In the November issue, the Enact trialists report their findings on the safety and efficacy of NA1, a compound that has been shown to have neuroprotective effects in a primate model of a stroke. For this phase two randomized double-blind placebo control study, the investigators recruited almost 200 patients with iatrogenic stroke in 14 hospitals in North America, and they report quite encouraging findings in human beings this time. The second article in this issue is actually a very impressive endeavor uh, reported by the Metastroke collaborators. This is a report on the genetic risk factors of ischemic stroke and its subtypes. These researchers have meta-analyzed data from 15 cohorts with more than 12,000 individuals with ischemic stroke and over 60,000 controls, all of European ancestry. After that, all novel signals were replicated in over 13,000 cases and almost 30,000 controls. Truly a tremendous effort, a mind-blogging effort. Finally, in the original research section, the issue includes an analysis of the retina in patients with multiple sclerosis by use of optical coherence tomography. The researchers here are trying to find associations with disease activity or disability progression. This is a very intriguing piece of research. Fantastic. What else have you got, Anishi? Then, in the review section, the issue also includes an article by Ellen Sidransky and Grisel Lopez on the link between the GBA gene and Parkinsonism, a paper on the categorization of patients with neuropathic pain according to sensory profiles, and last but not least, a splendid personal view by Jakob Stern in which he revisits the notion of the cognitive reserve in ageing and in Alzheimer's disease. Thank you very much, Lena. And now let's hear more about MLC. And here is one of the authors of the paper introducing herself. I am uh, Mario van der Knaap, and I'm a pediatric neurologist in the VU University Medical Center in Amsterdam. Professor Mario van der Knaap, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. You're one of the authors of a review in the November issue of TLN. It concerns a disorder that I would struggle to pronounce. Can I ask you to to give it its full name and thereafter we'll call it by its uh, abbreviation? We call the disease megalencephalic leukoencephalopathy with subcortical cysts, abbreviated to MLC. Thank you. There's no way I can pronounce that on a Friday afternoon. Actually, 
I'm just noticed by looking at the references in the paper, is it fair to say that you actually uh, uncovered this disorder? It was actually called by your name? Yes, it's sometimes called by my name, but um, my name is rather difficult to pronounce. And we have described multiple novel disorders, so then people started to say, van de knaap disease 1, van de knaap disease 2. So it all led to confusion. And I think it's better to call it by, uh, you know, a, a, a more logical name like MLC. Of course, nobody discovers something all anew, uh, because there had been some publications prior to us. The only thing is that nobody saw it as a, you know, disease entity. So it's correct to say that we were the first to describe it as a disease entity. First of all, tell us a bit about MLC, because I, th- I think it's probably fairly poorly uh, uh, understood con- condition. Can you describe the the typical brain features and characteristics of this disease and we should say this 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 is a disorder affecting infants young children isn't yes. it yes it starts in infancy so at birth uh, children are normal they look normal behave normal and then in a couple of uh, months the head size becomes too large so they become macrocephalic and that's usually the reason to do an MRI or, or CT scan, but most commonly an MRI, because they are suspected of having a, a mild hydrocephalus. And when the uh, MRI is done, it shows a horrendous white matter disease, actually, because it looks impressive. The white matter looks very swollen and abnormal in signal intensity. And this is in, in a great contrast to the children, because the children are actually are normal apart from having a big head. Sometimes the development is a bit delayed, but nothing else than that. And then after a few years, they start to experience a motor deterioration with the onset of mainly cerebellar ataxia, but also some spasticity. Children have seizures, but these are infrequent and easily controlled with medication. Cognitive slowing develops, and most children become wheelchair-dependent as a teenager. Most children end up in special education. But there is, of course, a wide variation. Some children never walk, and some patients still walk as uh, adults and have a job and have an independent life. So although it is called a leukodystrophy, and it comes with the bad connotation of a leukodystrophy, it's a, it's a slow disease. And how does this disorder progress through childhood into adulthood? Well, children show motor regression, like uh, cerebellar ataxia, spasticity, they become wheelchair dependent. They have some uh, also cognitive deterioration. So they, most of the children end up in a wheelchair and being, uh, you know, mentally deficient. But some do better. And they, they, they still walk when they are adults. And although the disease is rare, the incidence seems to be highest. It mm-hmm. seems rather curious. In Turkish population... Yeah. in a Turkish population and also Indian agroal um, populations. Can, yeah. can you give some insight in, into why that should be? If an autosomal recessive disorder, because MLC is an autosomal recessive disorder, is very rare, that means that the carrier frequency in the general population is very low. And that means that if you are not related, the chance of having a child with MLC is extremely low. But in the case of consanguinity of inbreeding or inbreeding, the chance of having a child with MLC becomes larger. And especially in some populations like the agrawal community, a founder mutation is sort of, you know, circulating. And then the chance uh, of having a disease with MLC becomes much higher. Why it's specifically the... So I understand the agrawal community, why the incidence is so high there. 
but why uh, the incidence is higher in the Turkish population than in other communities in which consanguinity is common, that I don't know. That must be the, the, the local carrier frequency. Thanks. You touched on the genetics there, and it would seem from your paper that we know quite a bit about the genetics of MLC, but specifically, do we know how a mutation in, in an MLC gene actually leads to the disorder in the first place? When MLC was defined as a disease in 1995, so we did a genetic linkage study and found the first gene in 2001, that's the MLC1 gene, which is mutated in approximately 70% of the patients. I think two or three years ago, we found the second gene in collaboration with a Spanish group uh, of uh, Dr. Ra Raul Estevez. And uh, that's the HEPACOM or GLIOCOM gene. But that's mutated in approximately 30% of the patients. Now, GLIOCOM is a chaperone of the MLC1 protein. So if there's a defect in GLIOCOM, MLC1 is mislocalized. And if MLC1 has a defect, nothing happens with gliocom. So that means that MLC1 is the decentral protein in uh, the disease MLC. If something's wrong with MLC1, you get the disease MLC. And when we found MLC1 in 2001, nothing was known about the protein, nothing about the function. It didn't belong to a family of proteins, uh, nothing. So we worked on that for a decade and then uh, had a paper, I think a year ago, in which uh, we for the first time uh, could provide evidence that MLC1 is involved in maintaining brain, iron, and water homeostasis. So if MLC1 has a defect, there is a problem with the uh, iron and water homeostasis in the brain, which actually leads to a sort of uh, white matter edema. A broader question, I mean, as we're finding out more about the mechanisms of MLC. Do you think there's optimism that there could be some treatments for the d disorder on the horizon? Yeah, you know, it, it will not be easy because uh, you would say uh, we need to decrease the water content of uh, the brain white matter. And, uh, you know, already a long time ago, people have tried diuretics and that doesn't work. The other option could be, can we enhance MLC1 expression? And I'm a little bit doubtful about that because you would increase mutant MLC1. And I don't know uh, whether that will function. I doubt that. But then the other thing is, can we influence other channels, you know, without a basic understanding of how the pathophysiology of MLC works, we will never have treatment. And now we have a starting understanding of how it works. We can think about it. Another important thing is that we have an MLC1 knockout mouse model that has the disease. And so we have something to work on and to try treatment on. Indeed. But in the meantime, do you think in terms of diagnosis and management, there are things we could be doing better now? Basically, MLC is an easy diagnosis because the MRI is so telling but the thing is that, you, of course, you, you first need to know the pattern in order to realize uh, that the disease is there and that it is easy to diagnose. So that this is about knowledge. And then we, ha we have the genes, so uh, DNA confirmation is possible. I would say that with better education of colleagues uh, the, and um, a paper in Lancet Neurology may help in that, the disease should be easy to diagnose. If you are talking about management of patients, I would say, you know, 
MLC is a rather reliable disease. It's it's not a disease that you, like multiple sclerosis, that you see certain worsenings or rapid deteriorations, factors to avoid. It's a rather reliable disease. But, of course, with this physical therapy and special education that we give, we don't cure the patients. It's still, in the in the end, a bad disease. You know, you, you become wheelchair-dependent and patients die. So uh, we need to find a cure that's most important, I think. Indeed. Well, time time is out now, but it's um, it's a fascinating review and really enjoyed talking to you on the TLM podcast. So that's Professor Mario van der Knapper from Amsterdam. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. And thank you for the interview. Many thanks indeed to Mario van der Knapp and earlier to Elena. Many thanks, Elena. Many thanks to you, Richard. And thank you all for listening. See you next month.